HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Visit a farm. Log on to EscapeMaker.com, New York City's guide to ideas on weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. No car? No problem. This year, EscapeMaker is offering the Dutchess County Farm Fresh Tours Program in conjunction with Metro North Railroad. Take the train from New York City and spend the day exploring local Hudson Valley agritourism with farm, winery, and distillery visits. Just a quick two-hour ride. For more info, stop by the EscapeMaker pop-up shop located at Fultonstall Market in the South Street Seaport. Sign up for your farm getaway at EscapeMaker.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We, of course, are coming to you from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is a lovely day in Brooklyn, and you, of course, have tuned in to the Farm Report. As usual, we have a pretty jam-packed show for you today. Um, but I'm, before we get into our, our guests, I'm going to start things off on a little bit of a somber note. We've been thinking a lot in the past couple of days about our friends out in Northern California and Napa in Sonoma who are dealing with really incredibly destructive, um, dangerous, lethal um, fires. And we uh, look forward to being able to talk a little bit more to our friends um, next week to hear what they're seeing, what's going on on the ground but this week, as you might imagine, a lot of them are still in the process of even assessing what's what's happening, what um, has been impacted on their vineyards and in their spaces. I did want to share, we did get a little bit of an update from Robert Sinsky. Um, Robert Sinsky Vineyards and Winery is in Napa on the Silverado Trail. And he sent over a note this morning, and this is what he had to say. I've canceled my upcoming sales trips to deal with a fallout and cleanup. I'm concerned about my friends, employees, and those who have suffered worse losses than us. Many people will be without work for a while. The best thing that you could do would be to feature local wines 
and find a good charity to, to help vineyard and winery employees who will be most impacted. Besides property loss, most of us will lose the critical tourist dollars and smaller wineries will not be able to hit the road to sell their wares during the critical pre-holiday season. If we can continue to sell wine, we can continue to pay our employees and to get back to, quote, normal as quickly as possible. Then we need to focus on climate change and educate people to vote the environment. It needs to be the number one issue for all eligible voting citizens. The world has bigger problems than just wine, the wine industry and these fires. We need intelligent, savvy politicians who make climate change their top priority and we need to put others on notice that the world has moved beyond fossil fuel and chemical farming. I have said for years that vineyards are the canary in the coal mine. What we are experiencing now is what's in store for the rest of the world if we don't move from this carbon if we don't move on from this carbon-based economy. Whew, food for thought. Um, Robert, our, our thoughts definitely go out to you and your employers and and everyone um, across Napa Valley, Sonoma County, and um, all of Northern California um, who are, are being impacted by this fire. And like I said, we'll bring you more on what this means for the farmers um, and the grape growers in that region next week. So hang tight. Today, we are joined on the line at the top of the show by Becca Ramel. Becca is um, a manager at one of my very favorite farmer's markets in the whole country up in Ithaca, New York. And we're going to hear a little bit more from her about the uh, really inspiring history of that market and the work they do and a little bit about her own farm. Then in the second half of the show, I'm sharing a recording I made um, back in September up at Fishkill Farms uh, with Josh Morgenthal. Uh, it was an interesting day when I visited Josh, and it kind of, uh, you know, draws parallels to the reading from the top of the show. I caught Josh just after he had come back from a tour of his apple orchards, and they had been hit by a very big storm the night before, and there was two rows of um, full-grown apple trees that had been completely knocked down, and it was really devastating to ride out and, and take a look at the destruction that had been, you know, wrecked it in this vineyard and it felt so random there are rows and rows and rows of trees and for some reason there was these two spots in the middle of the orchard where two groups of about 20 trees had um just been knocked over snapped clean at the base of the tree and to stand there uh with josh and watch him um taking in the scene was pretty intense and it was weird to think about those trees represented years and years of work and nurturing and care. And, and, you know, at the snap of the fingers, they were gone. And this was just a tiny, you know, a tiny piece of the overall property. But really, it was a powerful moment for me thinking about all that farmers have to deal with day to day. Um, but you'll, you'll hear this in the recording. Josh is very upbeat. Uh, we rode around in his pickup truck and he gave us a little bit of the history of the orchards and the, the family's farms. And it's a really fun interview. So hang tight. That's going to be coming up in the second half of the show. But to kick things off, um, I'm really excited to welcome Becca and hear a little bit more about what's happening up in Ithaca. Becca, welcome to the show. Thanks, Erin. Really excited to chat with you today. So I um, learned from your bio that um, prior to your work managing the farm that you were a professional naturalist. And I realized I don't exactly know what that means. 
<laughs> a lot of folks probably don't. Um, I worked in outdoor education and spent time out in the woods leading hikes and really helping people connect to the environment and um, the natural landscape and, and kind of build those relationships. So through that work, I really started to question what I was eating and how that was affecting the landscape I was teaching people about and kind of building all those relationships and, and really got interested in food systems work, which is what has led me here today. So, so the Ithaca Farmer's Market um, operates very differently from the New York City Green Markets. Um, for folks who have not had the pleasure of visiting the market, maybe you can give us a little bit of a lay of the land uh, what type of vendors and producers people see, what the vibe at the market is, um, and, you know, kind of what it's like on a typical um, busy Saturday afternoon. Yeah, we're just wrapping up our peak season here. So we um, have been pretty busy up until the last few weeks, which has been fantastic. Um, we are a cooperative of farmers, chefs, and artisans here in Ithaca. Um, they are all located within 30 miles of Ithaca. So if you come to the market, anybody you talk to will have grown um, or uh, cooked or produced their product um, within 30 miles. So it's a really great way to make some connections in the local economy in the area here. Um, and there's, there's quite a variety of um, products here. So you can find anything from really great fresh produce to wood-fired pizza, to um, handmade uh, ash baskets, um, all sorts of fantastic artisan um, products and local foods. Yeah, I think that's like one of my favorite things about visiting the market is, well, one, I mean, it's in a really beautiful kind of built uh -huh. structure, too, and right on the water. Maybe um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the actual kind of physical location? Yeah, um, so... The market is a really, I think it's a really interesting example of how some grassroots efforts um, have really come to fruition over the last 45 years. Um, the first year the market was open here in Ithaca was 1973. So 2018 will be our 45th season coming up. Wow. Um, and yeah, it was just pretty incredible. Um, so the vendors have really been in charge of making this market go from the start. Um, so they moved around locations for a few years, but in 1988, they moved here to what we call Steamboat Landing in Ithaca, um, and they worked to find a permanent location and build the market pavilion. So it's a kind of an open-air pavilion. Um, it's really great. It keeps the elements off, but um, it also provides us with just a really great backdrop for market days. Um, and I think what's really just fantastic about all of it is that it's it was really vendor-driven and, and market member-driven. So, um, you know, it wasn't like a market came in and built it for them. Um, they really made things happen on their own. Yeah, so for folks who are up in the Ithaca area, um, the kind of the running joke is Ithaca, it's gorgeous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because there are all kinds of wonderful uh, gorges and hiking trails, and it's really like a wonderful way to um, get out of the city and spend some time. I always really appreciate the market because um, you can go and you can get really interesting, uh, you know, ready-to-eat food um, in addition to shopping for produce, in addition to buying gifts to take back for your family. Um, when you guys are thinking about um, the vendors that you're going to bring into the market, and I know you have the market on multiple days, how yep. do you kind of think about um, what the right mix of vendors is and really kind of curating that list to make sure that everyone who's coming to the market 
as a vendor is able to, you know, make enough money to really make that a sustainable part of their business? Yeah, that's a great question, and we do it quite a bit differently than a lot of other markets do it. Um, and, I, you know, I've worked with a few different markets um, in New England as well prior to this. And, you know, what I've learned is that each market has its own formula that really makes it work well. Um, and Ithaca's formula is, is interesting because it's really a seniority-based formula. So um, people that have been here the longest get in on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and then we have markets throughout the week as well, which almost anybody can attend um, as a member of the market. But vendors can apply as long as you're within the 30-mile radius of Ithaca. You can apply to be a member of the market. Um, and that'll give you certain privileges within the market days that you're able to access. Um, so we have about 60% farm um, and agricultural vendors, um, 20% prepared food vendors, and 20% artisans. Um, so it's kind of the makeup of our market in general. Um, and that kind of leads you to what you see on Saturdays and Sundays here at Steamboat Landing, um, which seems to be a really great mix. And there's an amazing diversity, um, as you pointed out, um, of cultures, of um, products, of um, different backgrounds. It's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, when people think of upstate New York, I feel like they might not necessarily think of it as the most diverse, one of the more diverse parts of the country, but I'm often struck by um, the makeup of the community there. Anything, anyone in particular that um, that you want to shout out that people might not necessarily associate with kind of the upstate New York vibe? Yeah, you know, I think our prepared food is really what's um, pretty intriguing to me and a lot of folks here. Um, we have some fantastic farms, but the chefs that are here come from a variety of different countries and backgrounds. So we have um, folks that uh, prepare Cambodian food that are from Cambodia. We have Sri Lankan food. We have Korean food. Um, we have your basic, you know, wood-fired pizza, which is delicious using local farm products. We even have a prepared food vendor who's um, a trained chef who um, prepares omelets and other breakfast foods um, sourced from local farms within mostly 30 miles of Ithaca as well. So um, there's really a little bit of something for everybody here. And um, you can try something new, which is really fantastic. If you come back, you know, every weekend during the market season, you can try something different. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the things I've been learning about um, communities across upstate New York is like there's a very rich history of um, kind of bastions that are, you know, safe, safe havens for refugees from different parts of the world and have been for decades and decades and decades. And mm -hmm. there's all different types of kind of cultures and resettlement spaces that are really baked into the vibe and the culture across New York State, which I just think is so cool. Um, you know, I think that also when people think about a market manager, um, they might fantasize a little bit about your job getting to like hang out at the market and drink coffee and get the best of all of the vendors. Yeah. And uh, give us a little bit of a sense. I know that's part of it, but I also know it's a ton of work. So what is kind of the landscape uh, of your week in that kind of market manager position? Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing. And, and my co-manager and I joke about it quite a bit, um, you know, a day in the life of a market manager. But, um, you know, we're in charge here with Ithaca Market um, of a lot of market day logistics. So making sure that the market gets off without a hitch, making sure that 
things are running throughout the market day, dealing with any emergencies that come up, answering customer questions and vendor questions, so kind of the basics. Um, and then during the week, we have a really exciting job of helping the market members here actually do a lot of the work that gets the market um up and off the ground for this season. So a lot of kind of the bigger picture work, like marketing. Um, so we have vendor committees that actually do a lot of that work, and we help facilitate that, um, as well as buildings and grounds and, and kind of some of the basics. So it's a lot of office and kind of behind-the-scenes work, but, um, you know, it's exciting, and it gives us a chance to really connect with the, um, the farming community, the artisan community, and the chef community here in Ithaca, which has been um, a real pleasure for me. Yeah, I have to imagine that you develop some good, like, negotiation and mediation skills. Yeah. <laughs> it's never a dull day here at the market, that's for sure. <laughs> so in addition to your work at the market, you are also um, working on building out your own family farm, the Bottomland Farm. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, we're actually in our first full season, which is great. And I got a lot of inspiration from vendors at the market and was able to kind of tap into some of the community knowledge from a lot of market vendors here. Um, and so we decided to focus our production on um, mostly pasture-based livestock, but we really wanted to take a look at the niches that weren't in the local food systems in this region um, and for whatever reason explore why they weren't and if it was possible. So we've decided to focus our production on meat rabbits, pasture-raised chicken, pork. Um, we're actually doing quail and quail eggs as well. So really um, kind of trying to figure out what's not already um, being produced here and how we can best produce that within our, um, our systems. Cool. So it sounds like quite a, a, a diverse operation. Any um, early learnings or surprises? You know, uh, it's always a learning process, I would say. But um, what's really been interesting for us is that we've had to explore different market opportunities. We don't vend at the Ithaca market ourselves. Um, so we've really tried to explore some of the different um, marketing opportunities within the region and um, really taking a look at the different food systems. You know, Ithaca itself has a pretty mature food system. The surrounding areas are a little bit behind Ithaca in terms of local food systems. So it's been a great, um, great way to explore the region. Yeah, and I, I wonder, too, about um, I, I'm not as familiar with kind of the agriculture history of that reason region, what are, like, what are traditionally some of the primary um, uh, crops or livestock that our uh, people are really have been focusing on there historically? Yeah, I mean, I think traditionally dairy has been a huge piece of the culture in central New York um, and still is to some extent. There are still quite a few large dairy farms in the region, so you'll see a lot of that as you're driving through the area. And then once you get into the Finger Lakes and um, west of Cayuga Lake um, a little bit more, you'll see a lot of the wineries and the cideries that are starting to really um, develop, which is a, a really fantastic addition to everything, um, as well as the orchards that are in the area. But you know, traditionally, it's a lot of a lot of dairy farms. So, um, as other parts of New England are as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like that watching and being a part of uh, driving that transition. I think is uh, yep. definitely you have uh, an interesting purview into the ebbs and flows of the agriculture community. So, I know if folks want to uh, visit, if they want to learn more, they can get um, market dates and uh, some vendor profiles and basic information. Um, at www.ithacamarket.com. But with the yep. moment we have left, I am dying to hear about something that's coming up soon. 
the international rutabaga curl. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, definitely don't want to miss talking about this. Um, so every year, the last outside market of the season, which I think this year is December 17th, if I have that correct, um, we hold the International Rutabaga Curl, which is um, an absolutely absurd and fantastic event where we curl rutabagas down the middle of the market and have a huge competition. Um, so adults can curl rutabagas. Children can throw turnips. Um, so there's really an opportunity to, um, get to know your vegetables in a different way. I, you know, I have to say that as a child, that would probably have been my preferred use for rutabaga. My mom used to (laughs) always like sneak them into our boiled potatoes and I could always tell the like bright yellow color. And as a kid, I just thought they were like the funkiest, strangest thing. So I think an opportunity to like whip them down the hall of a market would have been totally welcome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this is a, it's a great event. It's been happening for 20 years and we have a lot of fun with it. Um, you know, from a parade through the market all the way to the end of the actual event. So with medals and everything. So you could really, uh, your name could go down in history as you come up here and curl some rutabagas. Yes, the International Rutabaga Curl. Well, you can find out more yep. about that and the market at IthacaMarket.com. Becca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, guys, we are going to take a short break. We're going to hear from uh, Escape Maker, who is supporting our show today. And as, as it would have it, is a great resource if you want to uh, plan a trip up to Ithaca, up to the market area. They can point you in the right direction for things to do and places to stay and and all that good stuff. But hang tight. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Hey, it's Rec Tech. We'll be right back. to escapemaker.com, New York City's guide to ideas on weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. No car, no problem. This year, Escapemaker is offering the Dutchess County Farm Fresh Tours program in conjunction with Metro North Railroad. Take the train from New York City and spend the day exploring local Hudson Valley agritourism with farm, winery, and distillery visits. Just a quick two-hour ride. All shuttles then transfer via the Beacon, Wasaic, and Poughkeepsie train stations. Itineraries highlight artisanal eats, craft beverages, apple picking, eco-friendly organic farming, festivals, and more. Or, if you're looking for more info about visiting local farms and wineries, stop by the Escape Maker pop-up shop located at Fulton Stall Market on Front Street in the South Street Seaport. Open seven days a week, the market is rich with fresh produce, local meat, New York State apples and baked goods, homemade pasta, and cheese. Get inspired and sign up for your farm getaway at escapemaker.com today. All right. Uh, thank you, RecTech. I really like that tune. Uh, good choice, David. We are back, um, and I'm going to be um, stepping away from the mic here in just a moment to bring you uh, a recording I made on site up at Fishkill Farms. Um, 
with Josh Morgenthal. You'll hear me um, as I arrived on the farm at the very top of the recording, and then we jump right in with uh, Josh, who uh, runs the farm. It's his family business. And basically, you'll listen as we ride around in his uh, truck, taking a tour of the orchards and the operation and getting a little bit of background information on it. A really cool place. Um, Another spot uh, in New York State that I cannot recommend highly enough. They do everything, um, really everything that you could imagine up there. And talking about diversity, I've never, I was there on CSA pickup day and I, I just couldn't believe, um, the, the variety of, um, both like fruits and vegetables and wonderful products, but the wide, uh, array of different types of people who are coming to pick up vegetables and engage with the farm. It's a pretty special place. So without further ado, I'm going to bring you uh, me and Josh. This was recorded back in September. So enjoy. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Farm Report. This is take two. We are coming at you uh, from the grounds of Fish Kill Farms up in the Hudson Valley. I've just pulled into a quite sizable parking area and had to pull out uh, a trusty canvas bag to pop over the mic here to help cut down some of the wind noise in the background. But man, is it a beautiful Friday afternoon. Uh, On my way into the farm, I passed a sign for uh, yoga on the farm on Saturdays. There are a ton of people kind of milling about, heading up to the farm stand, which is where I'm going to connect with Josh Morgenthal, who is one of the owner-operators of the farm. So we can learn a little bit more about what they do here. So here we go. So, um, yeah, my grandfather purchased the land in 1913, and it was originally a commercial orchard and a dairy. And then there were some diverse kind of berries, and uh, they had hens. But it was like all commodity, um, not commodity, but commercial farming, wholesaling to retailers and supermarkets, you know, locally and long distance. Um, and it was over a thousand acres at one point, wow. um, which is crazy big. What is um, it now? It's, now it's 270 acres. Okay. Um, so we're farming, we're actively farming about 150. Um, we just cleared another 10 acres that was uh, once farmed and kind of got overgrown. So it's like, you know, when I started uh, moved back to the farm eight years ago. <clears throat> I um, we started. We had about thirty acres, and it just felt like one hundred and fifty acres was never. It was just crazy yeah. amount to farm. Yeah. And how are we ever going to sell that much produce? And then each year, it's just been the market's grown, and certain years we have a surplus that we don't sell out, but it's pretty consistently kept pace. Um, and we're now, like, we could probably use another 100 acres of land. Wow. And we'd need more infrastructure for storage and more employee housing and more management. And it, it's a big, uh, it'd be a big step to take. But, like, this weekend we don't have, um, we don't have enough peaches to both send to our CSA and our farmer's markets and pick your own. So we just had to close peaches to pick your own. Yeah, you have to, like, <laughs> make some choices. Well, yeah, I was noticing um, up on the barn, like, the old, like, trough, I'm wondering, too, it's, like, what of the infrastructure is, like, here or from original and... Almost ri- none, of none of it. right? So like, what, this has, like, some is, foundation like pieces. That, that foundation that we're currently working on, and you see we've dug around it, um, 
because we're about to pour a new pad on top of it and build a barn extension. Right. But that whole foundation was a uh, barn that had been added to, you know, the, the original piece was a post and beam and it was uh, built 150 years ago. And then in the 60s, like 50s and 60s, they added a packing house and big cold storage rooms for apples. Um, and we had a barn fire in 2009 and the whole thing Ugh. burnt down. It was like, it was actually a, a decision point where it's like either we give up or we put, we borrow money and we uh, just go for broke. Um, and that was of, like shortly <clears throat> after you'd come back to be on the farm, right? Yeah, it was, it was like two years after I okay. came back. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I'm, I'm not really going to do this. Yeah, um, and it was also just... It was difficult because we'd also, um, previous to my moving back, the farm, my father, there's there's no clear successor, and he was passionate about keeping it going his whole career, even though he's working off the farm, but uh, none of his kids had any interest, and he couldn't find a farm manager, um, and so he was just sort of thinking, I'm going to have to wind this down, so they had paid the minimum insurance and hadn't updated their insurance for like 20 years so the the barn which burnt down which to build new would have been about two million dollars we ended up collecting like two hundred thousand dollars on it which <laughs> didn't get us yeah a third of the way to building the replacement yeah. which we've been using for the past uh however many years but it was about half the size and um uh, we're finally, it's exciting. We're finally at a point where we're expanding it close, closer to the original footprint. Yeah. It's kind of amazing the role that insurance plays in agriculture. And I mean, I think that just as like a normal person who has like trouble navigating, like buying like health insurance or car insurance, much less you're trying to like foresee the future with what's going to happen on your property yeah. and like... <clears throat> mitigate those risks but also like you know you like take chances sometimes yep. or if you're not paying attention because there's six million other things going on totally yeah no we we pay close to twenty thousand dollars in just crop insurance for our apples a year which is not you know it adds up and it is subsidized uh but um so it's, it's definitely worth doing yeah um but in a year like last year where we had devastating winter weather and spring weather that uh, sort of a perfect storm of warm weather at the wrong time, which pushed the trees out of dormancy, and then a cold snap, a few cold snaps that killed a lot of the buds. Yeah. Um, we ended up with only 40% of an apple crop, and it was it was worth every penny. <laughs> we, we, you know, the insurance. We, we ended yeah. up collecting the full amount of our coverage. Um, but, um, but regardless of that, we still like that, that insurance is set to cover, com you know, some percentage of commodity sure. Apple prices, not necessarily not direct market prices. Yep. So, you know, so it's a good thing in an off year. It, it goes part of the way, but the issue for us is that we're, our, our entire infrastructure and all of our overhead supports uh, a direct market operation, which means I don't just have staff and management to worry about on the production side. Yeah. I have sales staff and management to worry about and a farm store that's open year-round that has to ha turn its lights on and yep. employ staff. 
and farmers markets that we're regulars at. So like that uh, coverage that we get that ends up being <clears throat> maybe, you know, uh, 25 cents a bushel that, or sorry, 25 cents a, um, a pound of apples that, you know, we theoretically lost, uh, that doesn't go, you know, come close to covering yeah, our costs, which are yep. more than a dollar a pound, you know? Um, how big is your team? So it's a super seasonal team, but, um, we're actually working on that and more and more, um, finding ways to, uh, to keep things going in the winter, um, with storage crops, predominantly apples, but uh, a lot of roots and we have a winter CSA and our farm stores open year round. So, and now we have hard cider. So it's like, we have more and more products that we can sell in the winter, which allows us to yeah, kind keep, of keep good people and staff. extend the season. Yep. So now it's I, like last win this winter at the low point, we still had about 20 people on, uh, between management and production. And then, uh, Right now, we probably have 50 people working on the farm, and uh, September and October, when we're harvesting our fruit and we're opening on the weekends for Pick Your Own, we have uh, four to 5,000 visitors come a day at our peak. It takes another 50 people to just- Manage that. Manage that, to gre <laughs> greet people, give them information, help them check out with their apples. I did that in high school. I worked at a, my dentist, retired, <laughs> to uh, run an apple orchard and really? so I would work out uh, yeah selling apples and like in the gift shop and the cider shop and like I love I like it's like such a it's magical a lot of fun. Yeah. part but yeah but it's like there's a lot of moving pieces and people yeah. coming in and you know it's like becomes I think like a whole event I mean one of the things I noticed just walking around this space here is like there's so many families here kids uh, there's so many spaces that are look like designed for people to hang out yeah and that's and we're working on that even more it's like I think what what I've realized doing all of these um, different markets all, all of which are direct to customers we're connecting and you know distributing our produce putting it right in the hands of, of the eaters but the um, pick your own in the farm visits is definitely where I think there's the most opportunity for us. Not only if it's done well, not not only economically, but just to like get a new generation who doesn't know where their food is coming from to experience a little bit of the magic of farming. Yeah. And um, and that's just that's an exciting yeah. thing for me. So like, um, there's also a lot of there's a lot of ugly sides to pick your own. Like people throwing fruit at you, you know, or, uh, <laughs> eating, like coming in, eating, you know, like two pints of blueberries and then leaving without paying for anything. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are bad days. You're like, but, oh, there are management issues. I yeah. mean, I've definitely been guilty of snacking while picking. You're not allowed on this farm <laughs> anymore. No, I mean, we, and we actually started, um, just for that reason, because we recognize like, part of the joy like if you're in a yeah, patch of raspberries of it, yeah. it's almost inhuman to ask someone not to, to eat one yeah you're not um, like in the bulk bin area at Whole Foods where you're like kind of sneaking a dried mango out yeah. you know? it's, like, it's different but at the same time 
so it feels different, especially if people are like picking it themselves. They feel like, well, I'm putting in work to pick this, so like, but I can it's take been a little priced bit. for that. Yeah, it's been priced for that, but it is this weird gray area where it doesn't feel like stealing, like it would if you were stealing from a supermarket. You're like, like Aaron, like you steal obviously from the whole foods. <laughs> <laughs> You can say it. I'm comfortable. It's, I, I, you know, if you atone, I will uh, forgive you. Um, but the, the cumulative effect is that if someone has a few tastes, has a few berries, it's fine. But if everyone comes and just gorges themselves, yeah. we, we lose money as a yeah. farm and we can't. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And it's like that gray, moral gray area where people are like, oh, I could just have a taste. But then they're eating a whole nectarine and then... Yeah. Other people see that, and it's a slippery. It's very yeah. difficult to manage, um, and, and very quickly you're either like uh, policing the farm in this very Big Brother way, which doesn't feel good for customers, and it's expensive. Yeah, you're like not really how I want to spend my time or like train my staff. So, right, yeah. it's not what we, I want my workforce to be yeah. working on. But on the other side of that, if you don't have the right structure in place and rules communicated and some policing then it becomes a lawless state and fast. people just that unfortunately there are like it's a very small fraction but maybe two or three percent of our customers that are really targeting like literally targeting pick your own farms to find weaknesses to steal produce right. not only to eat in the field but to to take to put it in their purses their to yeah, put it in their stroller pants, under their baby yeah. to like put it in their cooler under the like lunch you know yeah that so packed. I was like thinking about like loss prevention work in the orchards as like a whole other component of like managing I'm like listeners if you're out there I, I want you to know that like I don't take the dried fruit anymore <laughs> uh but I do, I, yeah, I like snack a little bit, but then I usually will also like put my thumb on the scale to like, I'm like, you know, yeah. charge, I'm like, let me give you an extra couple bucks because yeah. I like. We've all, we've all had hard times, Erin, <laughs> you know. So what so, are we looking at now? Where so are we? right now we're um, right kind of in the, uh, on the road at the intersection of our organic apple block and our, um, and our eco apple block um, and that's a good sort of segue into how we manage our fruit. When I started um, growing apples, I was really committed to doing it completely organically. Um, the, Which is unique in apples. And there's a good reason for that. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, from my point of view, if I was moving back to the farm, I didn't have an ag school. Like I hadn't gone to ag college. Um, and I, if I was moving back to the farm, I wanted it to be a, you know, to have some social benefit. And um, so sustainable farming was is a key piece of what brought me back to the farm. Um, but I pretty quickly realized that uh, oh, two things, tree fruit in the Northeast and in the Hudson Valley in particular is almost like close enough to impossible to grow organically under the current guidelines in an economically sustainable way. Yeah. Like, it's close enough to impossible that I don't think you could do just that. And so for, the, for that reason, we're, you know, about a third of our apple acreage is organic, and the rest is this amazing program that we discovered after already trying to push, like, you know, after a few seasons, I learned, shit, I'm just going to lose my crop every other year if I'm managing it organically and I can't 
can't run a business that way. Yep. I can't keep farming that way. You're like I'm not independently wealthy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, there's only so far that so long you can do that, and yeah. and so and then the farm is out of business, and then what was the point? So. I started to uh, like say, all right, we're not going to be organic, but we're going to do everything organically that w we can that'll work, mm -hmm. um, even if it costs more and is more difficult and takes more time and is a headache and takes some risk. But where there are pests and diseases that are affecting our trees that just there's not a good organic control for. Right. Short of building a greenhouse over the entire 150 acre farm. It's like having kids where you're like, I'm going to feed them good food. I'm going to make sure they get exercise and sleep. And when they get sick, I'm going to take them to the doctor yeah. and they're going to get antibiotics. They're going to get cough exactly. syrup. They're going to take an aspirin. But, right. Exactly. But we're not treating our kids like we're treating our livestock and pumping them with antibiotics yeah. every week. Um, it, it's really the same approach. And it's like, I actually do think of organic versus conventional farming and our sort of eco-apple um, program often in terms of uh, medicine, like Western versus Eastern medicine. And they're really, um, there are things that, that the sort of schools of thought of Western and Eastern medicine get independently of each other that really work and make a lot of sense, but there are, there are gaps in both. And so like thinking about the farm holistically and minimizing intervention and, and focusing on the health of the system and not just treating problems mm -hmm. is something that is should be part of good farming and that is, you know, ideally present in organic agriculture, although not always on larger commercial organic farms. And that, that philosophy can be applied to conventional farming. Sure. Um, but then sometimes you have, you have, you know, black stem borer or you have... Um, you know, uh, apple scab or plum curculio that's going to either decimate your crop or kill your trees. And given the choice between letting that happen and using a, like a, a sort of low footprint, low impact, uh, synthetic pesticide that has a very quick breakdown time and, you know, doesn't have a residual you're spraying, you know, months from harvest and you know that you're the rain and the sunshine is going to wash that material off and decompose it. And it's also, there's a lot of research saying that it's not, in fact, any more damaging than stuff that's often used in organic agriculture. Like, it's a no-brainer for me to use sure. that. Um, yeah. But so it's it's been nice actually to have a split operation because every year we try something different in the organic section and we're getting better and better at it. Yeah. To the point where there's like, when, when I started, there were about 12 problems that I felt like I would have to, to conquer them to do the whole farm organically. And I think we have it down to like four, three or four now. That's amazing. Which is exciting. And it means that if we can work those things out, um, then maybe all of our apples will be organic at some point. Yeah, well, I think too, it's like taking the long view. Do you ever just like take a minute and be like, I can't believe I know so much about all this random shit. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to take a minute now. <laughs> I don't think I have in a while. I always just find it strange. Sometimes I start talking. I'm like, wow, I really know a lot about this thing. And I don't, you know, it's just like there. Just this yeah. like bank of knowledge that you're like. You don't realize how much you're absorbing. All the time. Just when you're dealing with 
problems and solving them and researching. Yeah, well, it's yeah. Just like, no, you're, like, taking us as a moment to, like, stop and think. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. That was fun. Uh, I'm a big fan of Josh and the work they do up there. Wow, what a jam-packed episode. Big thank you to... Becca for joining us at the top of the show. Definitely keep the folks out in Napa and Sonoma and all of Northern California in your thoughts. And um, a special shout out to Robert Sinski. Thank you for sending over that statement to share with our listeners today. Thank you to David, who engineered the show today, putting together the recordings and (laughs) cutting out some of my more embarrassing moments. Um, This show, like all of our weekly programs, is available for free. Uh, We are completely supported by our underwriters like the amazing Escape Maker and individuals like you. If you're listening, please consider tossing a couple bucks our way. You can visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that beating heart and make a donation. We got some good swag if that is your thing. You can wear your Heritage Radio Network t-shirts with pride. I know I do. But uh, thanks for listening. Stay tuned in, and we will be back next week with another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.